Thank you, Vitaly. Stories of God's faithfulness. I love it. And that, that will be on a channel later if you want to refer to it or share it with somebody. And we also post in written form, if you're okay with that. We put that on our blog site, on our website as well. So, uh, good morning. My name is Tommy. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to be with you again. And we're going to dig into Romans 11 today, see how far we'll get. And uh, it's great to have some guests with us today that I've already met. Um, I want to pause and pray and ask for God's help and God's blessing Let's do that now. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done in Vitaly's life, Lord. And that is not a small thing, but it represents one piece uh, of, a, of a larger mosaic uh, that, that you are putting together, Lord. A, a piece of a cloth that's, that's a beautiful tapestry that you've been weaving together for all of redemptive history, Lord. And one day we're going to behold it. We're going to see every tribe, every tongue, every nation around the throne of God singing praises to the Lamb. And we're going to be a part of that hallelujah chorus and it's going to be a beautiful thing. And that's what this chapter is telling us that you, your plan has always been from all eternity to, to call out a people for yourself. God's people and God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing. And it's going to be a global redemption, Lord. Everyone will be represented there. It's going to be beautiful to see. And in the meantime, we live in, in brokenness and fallenness. We see sin and unbelief and rebellion around us, Lord. We see lives that are impacted by tragedy. I pray for, for Stephen Ekman and the crew that's going to be joining him with Samaritan's Purse as they travel to the areas that have been hit uh, by hurricanes. Bless him. Bless that team. May they be the hands and feet of Jesus, Lord, keep them healthy and safe and united. May they be able to share just the love and the rescue and the deliverance of Jesus to those who uh, have opened their hearts to Him, Lord, and turn from their sin. Pray just to, to hear uh, stories from, from the front, stories from, the, from war, Lord, when He returns. And I pray for our time together. Open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would do something powerful and miraculous and supernatural here, that your spirit would come even now. We know there are powerful, wonderful, beautiful realities that we want to behold in your word. We need your help to see them, to understand them, to appraise them, to act on them in faith. So if you're bringing a word, a word of comfort to someone this morning, a word of challenge, a word of conviction, may your spirit come, Lord, and have his way. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read our passage in just a minute, but I wanted to start with just a few statistics to help us see the relevance of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Out of the 16 million Jewish people worldwide, most do not believe that Jesus, Yeshua, is their Messiah, their Deliverer. The best statistics project that worldwide, only 400,000 to 1.8 million, and it's hard to, to land on a number. Only 400,000 to 1.8 million Jews have embraced Jesus. Now that is less than, way less than 10% of the population of Jews. And there's a word for that. There's a word for that in the Bible too, and it's called remnant. 
It means just a small core lump. The word remnant. God has preserved the people for himself from ethnic Israel. But he promises in this passage and in many others in the Bible that there's going to be a worldwide movement from Jews everywhere that are going to turn back to the Messiah. It doesn't mean every last person that has Hebrew DNA in them is, is going to return, but it means there's going to be a worldwide numeric uh, sweeping revival of the Jewish people. And Paul's going to tell us about that in this chapter. We're accustomed to hearing those statistics, but when you think about it, it's really outrageous because the Old Testament scriptures are written, written in the Jewish language, language of Hebrew. Jesus, the Messiah, came, and he's a Jew. He came to the land of Israel where the Hebrews live. He came in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures which, which were written in Hebrew, right? He called 12 Jewish men to be his apostles. And yet, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came to his own. And his own did not what? Receive him. But many people did receive him. And we've seen since, since the first advent of Christ that the growing number of people who have embraced him have been Gentiles. Vitaly's a Gentile from Russia. He just gave his story, right? Need to get some, uh, some Jewish stories up here too. Would love to have that. Come and talk to me. Love to talk to you about that. Sharing your testimony. The Old Testament predicted the arrival of the Messiah, predicted his life, his mission, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and still he was rejected by and large by his people. And so that's led many people, it certainly did in, in Paul's day when he wrote this letter, to think, okay, has God rejected his people? Is he finished with Israel? Had they, had they stumbled, they've stumbled over the cornerstone, they've tripped up, they were offended by this outlandish idea that their Jewish Messiah was going to be crucified and die a horrific, shameful, excruciating death and be hung on a cross and be banished and killed outside of Israel. That offended them. They stumbled over it. And Paul is saying, have they stumbled so that they will fall and remain down forever? And he gives us the strongest word in, in Greek for no. May it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. God is not finished with Israel. We've heard already the, uh, the rejection by the Jewish people of their Messiah does not mean that God is finished with them. Paul gives his personal argument. He says, hey, I'm a Jew. God's not finished with the Jews. I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew. I believe the gospel. And he says the, the core of the church in the book of Acts, you can read about it, 3,000 Jews. For the most part, we, we believe those numbers were, were Hebrews. Came to embrace Jesus. He gives an Old Testament historical argument about Elijah, the prophet, in a time that there was a lot of apostasy in Israel. Remember, Elijah was complaining to God. He ran from Queen Jezebel on Mount Carmel. And he says, Lord, I'm the last one. I'm the last faithful Jew. I'm all by myself. They've torn down your altars. They've killed us all. And nobody's left. And God said, you don't know what you're talking about. You've misread. You've misinterpreted your historical moment, Elijah. There's 7,000 more who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul says, to this very moment, there is a remnant, right? Preserved by grace, elect by God, chosen, called out, protected by Him. We've seen that. We've seen that historically. I mentioned this just in passing last week. Maybe in a sermon in the future, we can, we can dig more into the details. But you do realize 
that no other nation has experienced a rebirth the way that Israel has. It's miraculous. Even secular, unbelieving historians, they don't go so far as to use the word miraculous, but they say things like unprecedented, unbelievable, unimaginable, that this nation two different times has been scattered. There's been like a diaspora. They've been scattered and absorbed by all the other nations and yet returned, been rebirthed in their heritage, their identity, their DNA. Their nation has been preserved and kept. They've maintained their language, their culture. You can see that today. It happened in 1948. They were declared a state again, independent, recognized. Thankfully, the United States was in that number that recognized them. In the very month they were recognized, five armies attacked them. And they said, we're going to drive Israel into the sea. Well, they're still around, right? Why? Why is that? Because the Old Testament says they are the apple of God's eye. Amos chapter 3 says, you of all the nations have I known. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't know every nation. He does. He knows Russia. He knows China. He knows Every nation, but there's a specific intimate knowledge and affection that God has for Israel. He's always had that. It's, it's, the, it's bridal language. In other words, you guys all know my wife. She was just up here and did the Grace Life welcome. But I know her in a way that you don't know. She's my spouse. She's my beloved. God uses that kind of intimate, special, relational language with Israel. And because of that, he's preserving her. He's keeping her. He has a plan for her, and that's what the Apostle Paul lays out in these chapters. We've called these, these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, we've titled it God's Sovereign Plan. Ninety verses, three chapters. Paul takes the time to explain this is what is going on with Israel. God had a plan all along. None of this took God by surprise. He knew exactly what would happen when the Jewish Messiah came and the nation turned against him and rejected him. And ejected him and executed him. He knew that. He, that was planned from all eternity. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? It even says at one point, Jesus told a parable in Matthew 21. He told a parable about a man who planted a vineyard. Who dug out and planted a, a, a wall around it. Erected a wall, protected it, put a, vine, uh, a wine press in the middle. And then leased it out to tenants. And it's reasonable and expectant that he would return and, and collect his harvest, right? And he says, so this owner, the master, the lord of the vineyard came back and they treated, uh, they treated all of his servants that he sent back to collect the harvest, treated them shamefully, they stoned some, and eventually the owner sends the son and says, surely they will respect my son. You remember this? Well, they didn't respect the son. They stoned him. They said, hey, let's, let's go get the inheritance. Let's kick him out. Let's kill him. And Jesus is talking, he's talking to a Jewish audience. And he says, now what do you think is going to happen? He tells that parable in Matthew 21 and there's other derivatives of it in other synoptic gospels. And he says, I'll tell you what will happen. Will he not lease that vineyard out to others who will bear fruit? And he says, this is what's going to happen. He says, the kingdom will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation who will bear fruit. He's prophesying this is what's happening right now. And then he says this. He says this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And you think what? Jesus is saying this is exactly what God had planned from all eternity. And it's marvelous. It's actually a good thing that's happening. And you think how, in the, how, can, how can something as 
devastating as people turning away from Jesus. How can that possibly be a good thing? And that takes us to verses 11 and 12 right here. Let's look at it. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. He says this, So I ask, did they stumble? He's talking about the nation of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And you know there's a difference between tripping and falling down, right? I read not too long ago about a famous musician you may or may not know. He was at a concert. It was during the encore. He was saying his goodbyes. And he tripped on the stage and he fell a significant distance. And people that were in the front row said they heard a crack. And he face planted. I mean, he face planted bad and he lay still for eight minutes. He was bleeding profusely. That's stumbling and falling, okay? God is saying, or Paul is saying, is that, is that what's happened to Israel? Have they face planted and they're lying still unconscious and maybe they're going to die? Who knows? And Paul says, absolutely not. They've stumbled, they've tripped, but they're not, they haven't fallen. They're going to regain their footing. In fact, you're going to see this massive turning back to God. So let's continue. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, and this is a word that means on the contrary. It's a very strong adversative in Greek. On the contrary, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, we've, we've gone the 30,000-foot view over this passage. And now we're going down and we're, we're swishing around in our, and, and enjoying on our palate all the, the various details of this, okay? So, God is not finished with Israel. And you're going to see them turn back to God in three stages, okay? Can you pull that up for me? So, this is our outline today. There's three different stages. The first is trespass. Trespass. Israel's trespass opened a door for all the other nations. I mean, there's only a, one vision, Jew and Gentile. Everyone in this room is either a Jew or a Gentile. Some of us may be reptile. I don't know. No, there's Jew, Jew or Gentile, right? The, the rejection of the Jews opened a door. And that's what the word trespass actually means. It means a misstep, a false step. So here's Jesus and Israel says, no thanks. They stepped away. That opened a door. As terrible, as tragic, as devastating, as painful and agonizing as that is, that opened a door of opportunity to all the other people in the world to hear the gospel. And Paul says, that is a good thing. It's painful. It's sad. It's tragic. It, it breaks God's heart. It broke Jesus' heart. He wept over Israel. He lamented. It broke Paul's heart. He said, I would be accursed if I knew that my kinsmen, the Jews, could turn back to God. And he said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. He's, he's not giving up on them. We shouldn't give up either. Learn from the apostle, right? But their trespass opened a door. Something terrible was used by God for something good. And isn't that just like God to do that? We see that. Man, we see all kinds of examples. I'll give you one illustration, okay? Now, I'll give you a couple illustrations because I like to illustrate things. How can something bad turn into something good? Um, how many of you have heard of J.I. Packer, a prolific Christian author? Prolific Christian author. I don't know if you've seen any pictures of him. Um, he's got this egg-sized indention in his head. You see it right there? That happened when he was seven years old. 
See, Packer always wanted to be an athlete, even though he was quiet, withdrawn, studious, and academic. He, like every other kid in, in England, wanted to be an athlete. And uh, when he was seven years old, he was riding his bike, and the school bully, he said, the trespasser, okay? The school bully shoved him out into a busy street in London, and he was hit by a bread truck. It hit him, and it, it knocked him to the ground. He spent three weeks in the hospital recovering, and he had to have a metal plate on his head all the way until he went to college. And here's what the doctor pulled his parents aside and told them. They said, your son will never be able to be an athlete. He'll never be able to play sports. He'll never be able to be active like all the other kids his age. Because if he gets hit right there, even though there's a plate there, if there's any further damage done to him, it could kill him or it, he could become a vegetable for the rest of his life. And so fast forward the tape a little bit. J.I. Packer's turning 11. Every Brit kid, when they turned 11, it was kind of a rite of passage. Their parents gave them a bicycle. And he couldn't wait. He'd been dropping all these hints that he wanted the bicycle. So the day comes, he turns 11, he goes downstairs, he looks in the living room, and what does he find there? A bicycle? No, a typewriter. <laughs> he found a typewriter. Now listen, J.I. Packer is one of the most prolific Christian authors, I, I believe, who's ever existed. In fact, in fact, he passed away in 2015, but in 1995, he had written 165 Christian books. That was just in 1995, and he lived, see, what, 20 years after that, and continued to write. He wrote Knowing God. Did you know he was one of the primary editors of the ESV version of the Bible that we use here? And he considers that one of the greatest contributions he ever made. So how can something so terrible like getting a chunk of your skull knocked out and a school bully pushing you in the road and you losing your childhood dreams, how could that possibly turn into something good? Well, ask J.I. Packer when you meet him in heaven and I'm sure he'll tell you, right? So you see this, you, you, you all have a version of this in your, in your, in your story, I'm, in your own personal story, I'm sure. I was actually thinking about this the other day. I go to Lake Beresford all the time. There's a two-mile walking path there. And I'm always praying, Lord, give me an illustration. Help me understand this. Show me what this means. And I kid you not, a coral snake slithered right in front of me. You know, those are highly venomous Florida snakes. Uh, and I know, you're, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how do you know it was a coral snake and not a king snake? Because I know, because it had a brown nose. Do you always get that little rhyme mixed up? Black on yellow, kill a fellow. Is it black on yellow or is it red on yellow? Let me hold it. If it has a black nose, get away, okay? If it has a red nose, it's the king snake and it's fine. So I saw a black-nosed coral snake and I began to think, you know what? If that, the fact that God created a lot of venomous animals, and yes, I do believe they were like that at creation. They had their venom in there. That's another sermon for another day. And, you know, there's other snakes, cottonmouths, cobras, rattlesnakes, pit vipers. There's poisonous scorpions. There's poisonous spiders. There's poisonous lizards, Komodo dragons, whose bacteria can really wreck you if it gets on you. Why? And I was reading to my wife the other day the statistics of people who are bitten by venomous animals and die or suffer really bad. Why is that? Is there, could there anything possibly good come out of this? You guys know the answer to this? Did you know that some of the best medicines that they've developed over the last several decades have came from venomous animals? Did you know that? One man, I have a quote somewhere in here. 
And he says, more lives have been saved by a pit viper than through any other animal. There's treatment for cancer. There's treatment for arthritis. There's treatment for dementia and Alzheimer's. You know, some of the best medicines they have to block pain and manage pain is like morphine or opiates, and it's highly addictive. And so they've looked for an alternative, and guess what? They found one. You know the venom in snakes? It attacks your nervous system. Deals with pain, right? It also has, uh, is it anticoagulants? Am I thinking the right way? Some of these pit vipers, they, they bite you and you bleed out. Your blood gets so thin it won't clot. Um, so people who have issues with blood thinning and blood thickening, that's been used. But listen, since it, atta- since it attacks your nervous system, uh, they have found ways to develop from venomous snake fluids, pain medications. Anyway, just a, you look all around and you see this principle. You can even see this principle in church history. Maybe this is the most powerful demonstration. You see how one person's or one group of people's rejection and unbelief and pride and stubbornness and hard-heartedness led to something glorious. Here's another illustration of that. When the reformers came, when the reformers came, John Knox, Martin Luther, Hugh Latimer, William Tyndale, Calvin, Zwingli, all those guys, they were uncovering the gospel. It had been buried under layers of tradition and rituals and legalism. It was in the dark and it was buried and they rediscovered it for themselves. There's famous stories about Luther and his tower. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 You know, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. And he knew he was talking about the righteousness that Christ offers us freely by his grace. And so these men started preaching the gospel to the common person. Well, guess who who hindered that and opposed that? Could you possibly imagine that it would be the church of that day? The state church, the clergy, the bishops, the pope, the cardinals. They hated that. They tried to silence them. They even killed some of them, persecuted some of them ejected them, excommunicated them. Well, guess what that did? That drove them. That drove them to go to the common people, to go to the masses. And people like William Tyndale. Did you know they strangled William Tyndale and then burned him at the stake? I mean, he was already dead, but they burned him at the stake. Do you know why? You know what his crime was? They burned him as a heretic for the crime of translating the Latin Bible into English so that people could read it in their common language. And then Luther translated it into the common language of Germany. And so all these common people reading the Bible. In fact, William Tyndale, when he was translating the Bible, he got into an argument with, a, I think it was an archbishop. And he said, well, I think people need the Pope's laws uh, more than they need God's laws. And Tyndale said this. He said, when I'm finished, God help me. The most common plowboy will know more scripture than the Pope himself. And you know what? The most common plowboy in that day did end up knowing more than the, of the scriptures than the, common, or than the Pope. Because William Tyndale translated it into the common language. It was illegal to own a Bible in any language other than Latin. Because only the erudite, the academic, the scholars, they knew Latin. And they were the only ones that could be trusted to, to teach the contents of the Bible to the common people. Did they do that? No, they didn't. They withheld it. They twisted it. They buried it. And so the church's rejection of that and that day led those reformers to translate the Bible into the common language. It happened again in the Puritan age, in the 17th century and in the 18th century. Whenever men like 
George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley and others came to the colonies and went to the church in London. And they started preaching the gospel and they knocked on the door of the church and they said, hey, uh, there's a demand right now for gospel proclamation. Can we, can we preach in your pulpit? And you know what the, what the church said? No, go away. You can't preach here. You're not welcome here. So because of that, George Whitfield started preaching in open air. Open, it's called open air preach, preaching. He went out in fields. He went to cemeteries. And upwards of 30,000 people accumulated to hear his preaching and were saved. There was a massive sweeping awakening. The only reason that happened, and the only reason backing up to the reformers, translating the Bible into the common language is because of unbelief, rejection, pride, trespasses. Somebody's misstep, somebody's false step, occasioned an open door where the gospel could, could freely flow to other people. And i got to be honest with you. As I, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking, man, you see this in the animal world. You see it in our own lives. You see it in the redemptive history of the church and of the Bible. Lord, I, I've wondered at times. Now, don't call me a heretic, okay? I have wondered at times, is the greatest impediment to the gospel being preached to the people out there who are the most hopeless, could the church be one of the greatest obstacles to that? The church grows ingrown. It grows exclusive. Maybe it starts confusing the gospel message and turns it into legalism and do better, try harder, pedal faster, and then maybe one of these days God will respect you enough to bring, to bring you in His kingdom. Is God going to do the same thing that He's done historically? I pray, I pray. If he needs to, he will. I pray this church would never be an obstacle. That's why our motto is what? Where the insiders exist for the insiders. No, that's not it. Where the insiders exist for the outsiders. So that's the first wave. That was the first wave is trespass, open the door. But that's not all. That's just the first wave. Here's the second wave. Envy. Envy. This open door that occasioned Gentiles, us. How many Gentiles in here believe in Jesus? Okay, thank God. Thank God then for, for God's marvelous plan. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous. Because listen, had every Jew and every, every Hebrew, every synagogue embraced this message that the apostles preached, then probably there would have been no impetus for the apostles going out into the highways, into the hedges, Right? Before we move on, let me just say this. God has so much room in His kingdom. You know that? He, he wants His spiritual wealth to enrich the world. God is not stingy. God is not a hoarder. He wants this message to go far and wide. And it will go far and wide. And if we aren't the channel, that's, that's what God wanted the, the nation of Israel to be. A channel through which... His blessing would flow to every nation on the earth. And God will accomplish that. He will. If we get in the way, we'll get moved out of the way and He'll choose another door. Right? Just like it was told to Esther. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe you're in the kingdom for such a time as this. God's going to use you. So here's the second point. In verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? And he, he elaborates on that a little bit further down in verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So here's a message for, for us. The ones who step through the open door 
occasioned through the trespass. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. That word means I glory in my ministry of the Gentiles. Here's Paul. He's a Jew. God has made him an apostle to the Gentiles. And listen, it took a lot of work to get the gospel to the Gentiles. Even in the book of Acts, do you remember? Paul had to give Peter a vision. Three different times he had to repeat it to say, look, they're not unclean. Don't call anything unclean that I have cleansed. Go to the Gentiles. He says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So here's the second wave. Open door, trespass. Gentiles are coming into the kingdom, right? They're falling into the church. They're violently storming the, the kingdom to be in. And here's the second wave. The Jewish nation sees those Gentiles that they have inherited all these blessings, right? And the Jews grow envious. And this is not a sinful kind of envy. This is a good kind of envy. This is an envy that you see something. You see somebody who has something that you want. And it creates longing in you. It creates this yearning, this aching. It would be like, let me give you an illustration. I have teenagers. Let's just say my teenagers, God forbid, reject me. And they say, Dad, I'm sick of this. I'm so sick of this. Have your teenagers ever used that, those words? I'm sick of this. I'm sick and tired of this. Your rules, your house. I'm tired of it. I'm out of here, man. And so they kick the Clayton parents to the curb. And, and, and they go outside. And let's say that where I grew up, we lived there in Arkansas. And it's winter, okay? And it's cold. It gets cold in Arkansas in the winter. And they say, I'm sick of this. I'm, I'm going to go out there. And, and they become homeless, right? Nowhere to go. Nobody can make their car payments for them or their phone payments or any of that. <laughs> so lo and behold, they're jobless too. They have no connections. And they're out there in the cold shivering. And then because Sarah and I have such a big heart for kids... We go and we foster and we adopt or maybe there's some homeless kids down the street and we go and we bring them in and on a really particular cold winter night, my kids come to the window and they look through the window. <laughs> but seriously, what do they see on the other side of the window? They see children. They see the, the, a roaring fire. They see love. They see joy. They see acceptance. They see a hot steaming plate of food on the table right? They see all the things that they wanted. They didn't realize how good they had it. That's what Paul's talking about. What does that create in them? Longing. They want, they want back in. They want that blessing. That's their blessing. And listen, God wants them to have it. He always wanted them to have it. That's the second way where we are creating and other people yearning. Now listen, here's a very broad principle. It should go without saying, but I'm going to say it. Your life as a believer should cross boundaries. You should be interacting with unbelievers. We're not supposed to be in some holy little huddle where the world is so dirty and so grim and so bleak and so dark. I don't want to be unsanitized. I want to just stay clean and, and holy and separate. So I'm not going to have any interaction with anybody. Well, then you're missing an incredible opportunity. And make no mistake, God's going to use somebody. He's going to use somebody to reach unbelievers. But the specific thing he is saying is, there is a ministry that God wants to have to, the, to our Jewish friends, right? 
This is, this is showing us the attitude we ought to have toward the Jews. That attitude has not been so great over the years, my friends. People have gotten very angry and said, they're the reason that Jesus was crucified. And so we reject them, and God says, don't do that. Paul says, don't do that. That's the reason he's writing this. Maybe the Gentiles in the Roman church were experiencing the same temptations that lots of Gentiles had. And being antagonistic. It's one of the reasons that these miracles that I'm talking about, the Jewish people have came back into their own nation. It seems like the whole world was against them, right? The Holocaust and trying to exterminate them. And God says, no, they're my people. I'm not done with them yet. So that's the second wave is in me. And let me say this. I think I've said this before. I really wanted to hone in on this today. The word riches is used here several different times in this passage. He's saying, because of their trespass, you Gentiles have been enriched. So let me ask you a question, Gentiles, or just Christians. Do you know the, the riches that you have in Christ? Do you know those riches? Are you glorying in them? That's the word doxa here. He's saying, I am glory. It's a doxology. Paul says, I make much of my ministry. Why? Because I want to provoke people to jealousy. I want to ask you a question. I've asked it before at 30,000 feet. Is your faith enviable? Do people look at your life and they say, oh my goodness. I don't know what, it, I don't know what that person has, but I want it. How in the world they can be filled with so much joy. They're so galvanized against suffering. They've gotten this stage four diagnosis or they've gotten the worst news that a person could get and yet they're smiling. Now look, that doesn't mean our greeting still holds true, right? We have hard days. We hear hard news. We struggle. We stumble. But we have been enriched, my friends. You have won the spiritual lottery. I was thinking about it this way the other day. Now you can be honest. You can be honest in here. You don't have to say it out loud. If I were to ask you, what is the greatest possible thing that could ever happen to you? Would you say it already has? Would you? That's a test, isn't it? Because i got to be honest. If somebody asked me that, if I'm not thinking as I should be, I would think, you mean like winning a billion dollars? <laughs> no, seriously, seriously I'm, I'm not the only one. Is your pastor the only greedy person in here? Come on. The greatest possible thing that could ever happen to you if you are a Christian has already happened. Nothing could possibly surpass that. You say, well, what are you talking about? I'm glad you ask. You have an inheritance. You have a hope. You have a future. You have a meaning. You have a new identity. You have a family. You're in a kingdom. You have a father. You've been adopted. You've been justified. There's no condemnation. There's no fear. I mean, guys, I, I want to do a backflip and charge hell with a double barrel water pistol when I think about this. What else could God possibly do for you that he hasn't already done? Nothing. The answer is nothing. He's done it all. He's covered all of it. When I was growing up, it's nobody's fault but my own. Here's the way I thought about Christianity. Well, my sins have been forgiven, forgiven I think, and one of these days I'll be able to go to heaven. I, I could find it. It's nobody's fault but mine. I had a Bible. I should have paid more attention in church other than looking around at girls, right? I thought there was no practical and current application to Christianity. It was just out there in the future somewhere, right? Uh, Paul says, oh no, people should look at your life, what you have in Christ, your new identity, your hope, your fearlessness, 
And they should say, man, I want that. This is a terrible illustration, but it's the only one I can think of, okay? Have you ever seen somebody who was just so generous and you knew they were wealthy, but you couldn't figure it out? You're like, man, what do they do? Who do they work for? Because I don't want to work for them. You know what I'm saying? Is there, is there any job openings? But they would splurge. They, when you went to a meal, they bought it. When you had a need, they met it. But they're not driving a Bugatti. They're not wearing diamond rings. They're not flaunting and flashing it. But you, it made you curious. There was no need or no suffering that they, that they ever experienced that they didn't have a smile on their face and they had the resources to meet that. And they would help other people meet it. Didn't it make you curious? You wanted to know, what do they do? Who's their master? Who's their employer? Where do they work? What company? Man, I want to work for that company. That's the idea here. Paul is saying, look, your life should be lived visibly. You should cross boundaries. And people ought to see your faith expressed in a multitude of ways. A multitude of ways. Man, your future is so bright. Do you realize that? Do you know what you had to look forward to? Oh, my word. A restored planet, a resurrected body, all of eternity. And in the meantime, look, there is never a point that you could say, literally, I'm all alone. You may feel alone sometimes. You may feel rejected. You may feel kicked to the curb, but God says, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I've deposited my spirit within you. I've given you help. I've given you an advocate, a helper, an advantage. You've been empowered. You've been embraced. You've been given spiritual authority. You're not alone. Your sins have been forgiven. No shame, no guilt, no condemnation. You're enriched. That's why Paul, when he's praying for the Ephesians, he said, I pray, I pray that they would know the richness and glory in the richness of their salvation. I pray that they would be able to appraise and comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the length and the depth and the breadth of God's love for them. It's, un, it's unfathomable. It's hard for me and Arkansan to say that. It's incomprehensible. That's what that word means in Ephesians 3. It means you can't, you can't count it. You can't count it. It would be like all the pennies in the world. All, I guess you can count those, technically. All the grains of sand, all the stars in the galaxy. You can't count them. It would be like trying to measure the end of outer space. They're still trying to do that. They don't get it. There's no end. It's infinite. You have been enriched. There is infinite blessing that has been given to you freely by God's grace. And people should look at your life and envy you. I can't believe I'm saying that in church. Did you know that? People ought to envy you what you have in Christ. Which means you ought to be showing them what you have in Christ. They ought to notice that you're different. You're not hoping in the same things that they are. You're not trusting in the same things that they are. You have different responses. You have different reactions to death and suffering and relational conflict. We don't ever have to say this is the end of the world. It's not. Your life is a short little vapor. It may be filled with strife and suffering, but that's okay, man. There's a new world that awaits you. I wanted to say that. I wanted to get that in. Man, I had a few more illustrations, but we'll just go with point three, okay? And we'll close with this. You guys have been listening pretty good, so maybe you get a shorter sermon today. Here's the last point of movement. Israel's return. This sounds like something from Lord of the Rings, right? The return of Israel. It's going to happen, friends. It's going to happen. And I want to tell you something. Listen, the language that Paul uses here is phenomenal. He's saying, look, there was a trespass, and it opened a door. And the Gentiles stepped in. And now we have 
all this richness that God has lavished on us. And the Jews are supposed to look at it, and they're supposed to grow envious. And there are stories of that. Shira, I met you this morning. You're a Messianic Jew. I bet you've got a story of that, how you saw something. I don't know, maybe, 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 maybe I'm assuming a lot here. But you see pockets of this historically. You hear stories about this. You know what, before I go to the last point, put that slide up of uh, Sahar. Is that his name? Jews for Jesus, I believe, is the organization here. He talks about a time when he grew curious about Christianity. Things weren't adding up to him with some of the stories he was hearing from his people. So he Googled. He did a Google search, and he Googled Christianity, and he found the New Testament written in Hebrew. And man, I'm never going to be able to read that. That's okay, though. He began to read the Bible in his own language. And God began to do a work in him. And he began to read about Jesus. And he began to see, man, Jesus was Jewish. Everything about him was Jewish. He didn't do anything that was anti-Jewish. To become a Christian is the most Jewish thing you could ever do. And he read about Jesus and it made him, he's so filled with mercy and compassion. I mean, really, who wouldn't love Jesus when you read about him, right? I mean, a few people didn't. But so, And this is the last thing I wanted to show you. He says, I look for a church in Tel Aviv. Am I saying that right? Tel Aviv? All right. I looked for a church in Tel Aviv. When I went there, I met true Christians, believers in Jesus, who loved God and one another. This at last was what my heart had been what? Longing for. He, he's outside the window. He looks in. He says, forget this. I ain't staying out here. I'm going in. And he went and it was what his heart had always longed for. Seeing how Jesus unites people and creates in them love and acceptance and forgiveness. As I began to regularly attend the church and a Bible study group, my lifestyle started to change. I broke up with my girlfriend and I was baptized in the Messiah. Hallelujah. And there's many other stories like that. So that's the second stage, but here's the third stage. Paul talks and he uses language that's incredible. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And then back in verse 12, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion, full inclusion. Man, that's a, that's a glorious phrase. And there's all kinds of debate. You would think, how in the world can you argue over something like this? Some people have a real problem with this. They're like, you mean like most of Israel is going to turn back to the Lord? Absolutely, that's what it means. Absolutely. You are going to see, and friends, I pray I see it in my lifetime. It's going to be something to behold. A global movement where God's chosen people, the Jews, are going to turn back to their Messiah. And you're going to see a sweeping awakening. I'm not talking one here, one there, few and far between. I'm talking about a movement of people returning. And, and what the Apostle Paul is saying is if the rejection of the Jews initially led to the riches of the Gentiles, and if the Gentiles embracing Christ and making some Jews jealous, if you think that's something, wait till you see what the whole acceptance of the Jewish nation is going to look like. And it's really hard to illustrate a movement, but I have an illustration for you, and we'll close with this, okay? How many of you have heard of a blue zone? Everybody. Wonderful. Then I don't want to do anything, right? No, there's a Netflix documentary now, and it's called... Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zone. So this guy, his name is Bill Butner, I think. Uh, he has spent the last 20 years of his life. He was a National Geographic researcher and explorer. 
And he traveled all around the world and he was looking for pockets of extraordinary longevity. And he found five different pockets and it's in totally disconnected places in the world. And they're called centenarians. Am I saying that right? People who live beyond 100. Now look, these people aren't drooling over themselves and wearing Depends diapers, okay? These people are like with it. They're like over 100 years old. They're riding horses. They work 10 hours a day. They had the lowest levels of dementia anywhere in the world. And he started studying them and researching them. And he's saying like, what do they do different in these areas? Because human beings could learn from this. And he started picking up five, six, seven, like 10 key things that these people did different. I'm not going to take the time to tell you what it is. I know you're curious, aren't you? You want to live to be over 100 years old, right? Anyway, you can go research that on your own. But here's the illustration. He spent 20 years of his life researching this. He wrote a book. My mom sent me the book. Thanks, mom. I'm going to live to be 150, I think. We'll see. <laughs> but here's what this guy's doing now. He is bringing all these lessons that he's learned to the United States of America because the United States of America has got some pretty alarming longevity statistics. Did you know that? Like 76 is like, you're doing great. You're doing awesome. <laughs> So here's what he wants to do. He wants there to be a sweeping movement. And he believes this. When people start embracing this, their quality of life will be significantly enhanced. And it will start to spread. In fact, he took this to Texas, my, my wife's home state. He took it to like cow towns where, the, where some of the highest levels of, of uh, nicotine and obesity and all kinds of stuff like that exist. And he's seeing like total transformation happen. So now there are... I think there's a, a few states represented there, but 72 cities in America have already embraced this Blue Zone project, and they're seeing dramatic, I mean dramatic results, and here is his hope. He wants to see this movement spread all across the United States. Now, this is a very shallow, trivial, superficial illustration. I get it. But the idea here is what Paul is talking about. There's a movement this thing that happened here and here in pockets, it's starting to spread, and you're seeing like an awakening. You're seeing people start to act. And he's saying it's powerful, it's attractive, it's contagious, and it's going to happen. So those are the three stages of the return of Israel. First is their trespass, which means richness for us. Second is our enviable faith, which is going to create longing and aching and, and the good kind of jealousy and envy. And they're gonna, you're going to see pockets and particulars of Jews coming to Jesus and the third thing we're going to see and we're praying for, and don't you want to be a part of this? To see the nation as a whole, the fullness return and be restored. Oh man, I'm looking forward to that. What a day that's going to be. What a movement that's going to be, that's going to, be to behold. There's a verse I have, I think in Zechariah. Do you have that up there, Charles? I just quoted this in passing last week. This is a prophecy. Check this out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Isn't that going to be amazing? A Gentile is going to find a Jew and grab hold of them with longing and say, take me to see the Messiah. I've heard that he's with you and I want to go. I want to get in on this. So let me close with this, my friends. I wonder if there's longing in your heart today. Some of the things I talked about, a new inheritance, forgiveness, joy, hope, 
Do you long and do you yearn and do you ache to get in on this? Have you tried everything else and it's left you guilty and it's left you empty and it's left you jaded and maybe you don't know why you stumbled into Grace Life Church today and you don't know why you're even here. I know why you're here. <laughs> I know why you're here. You're here because you need to hear good news. Here's good news. Jesus wants you, right? Jesus said this in John chapter 7, whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow out of him renewal, restoration, transformation. He didn't say whoever impresses me. He said whoever believes in me. That's, that's all that God requires of you. Repent, turn from your sin, turn from your way of doing things and turn and embrace Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No man can come to the Father except through Christ. Have you came through Christ? Have you came to him with longing in your heart and with humility and with repentance? Anybody can get in on this. Anybody can be in God's kingdom. It requires faith. It demands faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you turn to him today? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these truths. They are clear. They are powerful. They are exciting. And I pray that they're contagious I pray that you would work in the heart of every person, Lord, watching from home, or who's going to watch this later, it's been pre-recorded maybe for them, or who is sitting here in, in, in front of me today, I pray, Lord, these words would settle deeply in their heart. We would all want to be a part of this, Lord, the work that you are doing, forgiving people, transforming people, converting people, bringing them from, from death to life. And Lord, may, may a takeaway for us be never give up. Never give up hope. The people we think that are the most, uh, the less likely, the last person who would ever come to Jesus are those you target. Those are the people in your crosshairs, Lord. It's like Ezekiel 37 said, O son of man, can these dry bones live? Lord, breathe life into our dead hearts today, I pray. Resurrect those who are far from you. And breathe renewal unto those who have grown apathetic and indifferent, Lord. And they haven't really been an active part of your mission in reaching the world with this good news. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the good news about Jesus. I pray that you would resurrect dead hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is the part of our service where we, we have a song of reflection. We're just going to play a, a song for you to just consider what you've heard, reflect on it. It's called our Selah song, and we have a small team of people in the back that if you want to go and pray with them, you want to talk to them, you have questions, this is your time to do that, or you want to sit quietly in your seat and just reflect on the message that you've heard, we invite you to do that. If you want to fill out a connect card, you have a need that you want to meet with a leader, you need counseling, you want to talk more about the gospel, about repentance, about discipleship. Uh, you can do that. This is, this is your time and your, your way to do that. Or you just want to connect on your own later to our website. That'll be fine too. When you leave here, there's a, a box in the back. You can drop your Connect card in or you can go to the Connect Center in the lobby with any questions. But for now, just pause and reflect. And if you want to pray, we will be in the back. And then we're going to close out with some announcements, okay? Thank you, guys.
Thank you, Vitaly and TJ. That was great. Thank you, Tommy, for that word. You know, when, when you read the scripture before the sermon, you're like, How, what, what am I going to get out of that? And I know scriptures can either be a flashlight, a mirror, or sandpaper sometimes. And just to see the, the flashlight aspect of how God can use whatever is bad for something good, and we should always be looking for him working that way, just amazing. So thank you, Tommy. And I need to repent. My mic drop moment in your sermon is that I didn't know Coral Snakes had a black nose. He has this awesome sermon, and that's what's running around in my head. Coral Snakes, have, yeah, never mind. Uh, we have a few snake, few snake. We have a few slides. Yeah, got snake on the brain. Thank you very much. I'm more like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It had to be snakes. I hate snakes. So snakes on the brain. So we have three slides, I think, announcements. Uh, community groups have started back up this fall. It's never too late to join. Uh, there are five of them this year. Three of them are in Deland. Two of them are in Deltona. So please, uh, if you haven't joined one and you want to be a part of one, guess what? You can scan that QR code, and you can go uh, figure out what, where the five are. The, there's one, some on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You can figure out which one suits you best and um, sign up and go. It's a great time to be in fellowship with the church. Next, um, discipleship groups. I think that's like one or two steps deeper than a community group. Uh, a D group is a group of two to four people that want to come together and have a tight relationship. Notice there's three, the average and the mean of two to four. Pretty smart there in that slide of people that want to come together of like-mindedness and just grow closer to Jesus and work out life together. We all need to work out life, and we are created to maybe not do that alone. We're supposed to do it in community, so I think that's a way to work, our, work out our things in ourselves with, some, with other people. And so if you scan that QR code, it takes you to a screen where you can either say, yeah, I'm interested, I need to know more, or I'm all in, sign me up, send me in, coach. And I think, they, I think this goes to Matt, and so he, can, he will get those, and he will, I'm sure he's praying over them and all of that. So if you have real questions, um, go to him and ask him uh, about this. And lastly, uh, on November 10th and 11th, there's a discipleship weekend for the youth on Friday night from 6 to 10, I think they'll have dinner and then a Bible study and discussion time. And on Saturday morning, they meet at 9. And they will have another Bible study session and discussion time. And then they will have um, some play and fun in the afternoon and come back together for a third Bible study and discussion time in that afternoon before they're done at 6 o'clock. So if you go there, you can register. So you have to register. It will be at uh, the Emmanuel Presbyterian Church where all the youth stuff is. So... Please scan that code and sign up. And if I'm not mistaken, you all, please stand. And as we do every week, we will read our Grace Life charge. And it's our charge of what we're supposed to do when we leave here every week. So read along with me. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, 
his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.